Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say we have Norman Neymark on the show, and we'll be talking about his thought-provoking new book, Stalin's Genocides. Almost everybody would agree that Stalin was guilty of mass murder. Fewer of us, I think, would say that he was guilty of genocide. In this book, Norman Neymark makes the case that we are wrong in this and that we should actually say that Stalin was, just as Hitler and Pol Pot and others, guilty of the international crime of genocide. He offers some very interesting arguments. One of them I didn't know was that after World War II, the Soviets and other countries adjusted the definition so as to exclude social and political elements. In any event, I really enjoyed talking to Norman today, and I think that you'll enjoy the interview. So without further ado, here it is. Hi, Norman. Uh, hi, Marshall. Uh, how are you today? I'm just fine. Thank you very much. Good. Well, thanks for being on the show. I should tell our listeners that we're talking to Norman Neymark, who is a, a distinguished member of my field, Russian history, and he's written a really terrific new book called Stalin's Genocides. Uh, I have read the book completely. Uh, it, it very forcefully argues, as we'll talk about later in the interview, that we should consider uh, Stalin's crimes uh, genocides uh, under international law. And Norman has some very interesting things to say about that. As I say, we'll come to all that in due time. But Norman, why don't we begin the interview by having you just say a few words about yourself? Well, I was uh, I was born in New York. Uh, I'm an army brat, so I grew up uh, pretty much all over the world. <clears throat> and then uh, went to Stanford um, as an undergraduate and loved it so much. I stayed as a graduate student. And then when I got my Ph.D., um, I headed off to Boston for 15 years, where I was at uh, Boston University and at the Russian Research Center at Harvard, and uh, then came to Stanford uh, in 1987-88, and have been here ever since. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So things have come full circle for you. Yes, they have, and I'm very happy about it. I enjoy I enjoy the West Coast. I enjoy Northern California, mm-hmm. and Stanford's a wonderful institution. And how how did you decide to study um, Russian and Eastern European history? Well, there's a mix of reasons uh, that I decided to go into this particular field. Um, one of them had to do with an interest as an undergraduate in the left, meaning in Marxism and then Leninism and all those kinds of things that were very tantalizing, you know, to undergraduates in the 60s, as I was. And uh, I was very interested in, in the Soviet Union. It seemed strange and distant and in some ways forbidding. Um, but, uh, you know, just the, the sheer, I think, exoticism of it attracted me to to the field, and then I had some wonderful professors. Uh, one in particular, uh, Wayne Vlasnich, uh, was uh, a mentor and a friend. He was a Balkanist, so that uh, that 
accounts for the fact that I work both in Eastern European and in Russian uh, history. And at some point he said, why don't you go to graduate school? And I said, that sounds like an interesting idea. I said, how do I do that? <laughs> and he said, well, why don't you stay here? So I just continued. And fortunately uh, for me, um, you know, it, it really fit. It took, it took me a while to figure out that this was really something that, uh, you know, I was fully committed to. Uh, but eventually, uh, like I said, it turned out to be a very good fit because mm -hmm. I love teaching and I love research. So it's been just great. Yeah, no, that's a that's a that's a really interesting story. I always ask people how they got into the field that they entered, and I invariably hear something interesting uh, about that. So um, maybe you could say a few words about how you came to write Stalin's genocides. Okay, well, this has actually been a project. Um, the, the book, as you know, let me just take a step back. The book, as you know, is a kind of extended essay, and and I've been really thinking about these issues. Uh, having to do with Stalin and his crimes on the one hand and the history of genocide on the other hand for, for, for a long time. I mean, I wrote this book in 2001, I published a book in 2001 called Fires of Hatred, which was about ethnic cleansing and genocide. And at that point, uh, you know, I was trying to deal with the history of genocide and with issues of comparative genocide and, um, you know, so, so I was interested in both areas, in other words. One, the, the genocide history, the history of the Genocide Convention, how we deal with genocide. And on the other hand, with Stalin and with a lot of the new materials that were coming out on Stalin. So, uh, I, and I asked myself the question, you know, why is it that uh, Soviet historians in particular are so resistant to uh, putting Stalin, you know, in the in this history of genocide, and why is it that sometimes historians of genocide leave out, um, you know, the crimes uh, of Stalin? So that was my uh, motivation was to try to put these things together, and I came to the conclusion, and you know, it's really, as I say, an essay, an argument that I make. Um, and I understand that they're counter-arguments, and I try to recognize the validity of those in the book. But it seems to me there's a powerful argument to be made that Stalin's crimes should be considered uh, genocide. So that's, you know, that's really the genesis of the book. And with that conviction, then, um, uh, you know, I wrote a couple of essays on the subject, and then um, a German publisher... Uh, Sir Kampf asked me to come to Berlin uh, to give a lecture on the subject and said they would publish it and to turn in as much as I wanted to. And I thought, well, that's a good opportunity just to sit down and kind of write out what it is I was thinking and to do some more reading. And, um, you know, on, as you probably know, there's a huge literature now coming mm -hmm. on the 1930s and a very good literature. Uh, so it gave me the opportunity just to sit down, read some of that literature, and try to write out what it was I was thinking about this uh, this subject. And then I gave it to a friend who said, well, let's publish it. This is Eric Weitz, who, who suggested I publish it at Princeton mm -hmm. as well in English. So that's, that's the genesis of this project. Mm -hmm. I see. 
Uh, that gives us a lot of material to talk about. I want to begin by going back to something you said earlier, and that is that um, Soviet historians and some historians of genocide, but let's concentrate on the Soviet historians, um, have been hesitant, resistant to the idea that we should classify Stalin's crimes as genocide. Why, why do you think that is? Well, I think there's several reasons, uh, and it depends. You know, one has to be careful you know, not to overgeneralize about these kinds of things. I think several reasons pertain. One is, I think that um, any historians of any period like to think of their what they're what they're studying as somehow unique and different. So by putting Stalin's crimes in a kind of genocide category, <clears throat> it it tends to I think for some historians of the Soviet Union it tends to. Um, uh, you know, equate Stalin with Hitler, make it too easy to use a totalitarian model. Uh, they like the particularity. The historians always like the particularities of their subjects and uh, their specificities. And indeed, there are specificities of the Soviet 30s. So I think that's one of the reasons. I think another reason uh, has to do with how one thinks of Stalin's policies in the 30s. And, you know, we have colleagues uh, who believe, and again, I, you know, I don't want to at all minimize their talent or, or assiduousness <laughs> when I say this, who think that, you know, what Stalin did in the 30s was in some measure a preparation for the war, uh, that the external threats to the Soviet Union, which were there in the 30s, you know, dictated that he had to engage in some of these actions. Now, they will say these are brutal, awful, terrible actions that he killed unnecessarily, but it's hard uh, for the same historians to call this genocide because genocide is really the crime of crimes. It's the worst you know, crime you can commit in the international, uh, in the international judicial uh, system. And a crime of crimes can have no justification. In other words, it, you know, it can't be it can't be a, a, a means to an end um, of something else uh, in a kind of rational fashion. And I think that's hard uh, for some of our uh, 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 colleagues to accept that there was no reason, that there was no means to an end, that this was killing, um, you know, of a genocidal sort, which had no, you know, kind of rational basis to it. So, for example, this war scare argument is one that's used very broadly uh, by uh, Soviet historians to, to, to sort of say, okay, this is why uh, this happened. Uh, other people talk a lot about the modern, you know, and when I was a graduate student, we used to talk about the modernization argument. In other words, Russia needed to be modernized. In order to be modernized, everywhere modernization is accompanied by some violence. And therefore, the violence, in other words, is contextualized and somehow rationalized uh, instead of being seen as what it is, which I think is, you know, just criminal violence. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the arguments that are made. You know, there are other arguments made, too, that there were real conspiracies uh, against Stalin. Uh, you know, that Trotsky and the Fourth International was seen as a, as a danger uh, as a danger to Stalin. So I think this is part of the story, too. Mm -hmm. And then the final thing is, I mean, it's not the final thing, but yet another 
factor, I think, in all of this, for some people, not for all, is the kind of um, uh, residual progressivism that Stalin somehow represents the people. In other words, uh, Stalin was a figure of, in, in the history of Marxism in some ways. Uh, and some people have actually used Stalin as a way to say Marxism was rotten at the core. By the way, I wouldn't do that necessarily, but, you know, some people uh, do that. So there's this, um, you know, uh, as I say, kind of residual desire to give Stalin some credit, some due uh, as, a, as a Marxist, as a Marxist-Leninist, in some fashion as a progressive. I think a lot of this is disappearing, but certainly before the fall of the Soviet Union, and still to some extent, you know, there is this kind of sense that we don't want to put Stalin in the same category with rightists like Hitler, you know, like the, those kinds of killers. Mm -hmm. So these reasons and others, I think, people are hesitant, uh, you know, to take up this argument uh, and hesitant to accept it. And I expect a lot of critique, you mm -hmm. know, of the, of the argument. Well, let's actually uh, launch into the argument itself and begin by talking about the origins of the notion of genocide itself. We've discussed this a little bit on the show before in a couple of contexts, um, but I think it bears uh, rehearsing again. What, where do we get the word genocide and how was it – how did it achieve a international legal definition? Okay, well, uh, the story has now become increasingly familiar, which is good. In other words, more and more people are, are writing about it. And uh, let me just try to summarize my take on how this, uh, how this went. Uh, you know, there was this wonderful and fascinating character, Raphael Lemkin, a Polish Jew who came to the United States in 1940. Lemkin had already developed a concept of what he called barbarism, uh, in the early 1930s, in which he talked about the elimination, you know, of um, of uh, ethnic, national, religious, social, and political groups as, you know, deserving the name of an international crime. Um, and he tried to convince the League of Nations, uh, you know, to pass some sort of laws in this connection. In other words, Lemkin had already come up with a concept before he came up with the name. So he came to the United States, um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, it was not, uh, uh, it was after the Nazi invasion uh, of Poland, so it was 1940, eventually 41, um, and, uh, you know, worked in Washington, D.C., was watching what was going on in Europe, was shocked by the fact that his actual concept of barbarism had come, you know, into, uh, into being in some ways with the, the horrible Nazi occupation and the uh, the killing of Jews and Poles and others. And he came up in the book called The Axis Occupation of Europe in 1944 with a concept of genocide. I mean, he, he looked for a word to describe what he had in mind, uh, and he called it genocide. Now, in his book in 1944, Lemkin uh, limited the definition of genocide, you know, to national, ethnic, uh, religious and racial groups. In other words, he himself left out social or political groups out of his definition. 
I think this was partly out of, um, you know, his deep despair. Uh, his own family was involved about what was going on in Europe at the time. Um, you know, the Nazi crimes were what, again, what he had in mind now when he talked about genocide. And those crimes were clearly crimes against, you know, ethnic and religious minorities, national minor and national groups like the Poles or Russians. Um, so uh, his term genocide in some ways stuck. And it stuck because, in part because of his own persistence. You know, he went to Nuremberg. He lobbied for the use of the term. He lobbied for all kinds of things. And he was a very uh, interesting man and, um, uh, and very committed uh, to this uh, notion of getting a laws passed. So he didn't have much luck at Nuremberg. I mean, Nuremberg was much more interested in punishing aggressive war than it was in dealing with uh, the fact that uh, Jews and Poles had been eliminated. And so he continued his lobbying at the United Nations, and it worked. It basically worked. Although uh, the first drafts of the Genocide Convention, I mean, the first drafts, uh, the first discussions included social and in particular political groups. Uh, so that the original exclusive definition, which was just the, um, you know, the killing of national and ethnic and religious groups. Again, if you think about it, national and ethnic are different from religious. I mean, religious is much more an ascriptive category. You, know, mm -hmm. you can change your religion one day to the next uh, very easily. Um, but in any case, uh, that definition was the definition that was finally inscribed in the December 48 uh, UN Convention. And uh, I make the argument in the book that the reason that political and social groups were eliminated from that definition had a lot to do with a political compromise with the Soviet Union and its allies in Eastern Europe. Uh, and by the way, this included, remember, Ukraine and, and, and Belarus, which at that time were considered, had individual votes in the UN. Um, you know, uh, um, they insisted uh, that the mentions of political or social groups be eliminated from the Genocide Convention. And it's pretty clear that what happens is the United States, I mean, Great Britain, interestingly, uh, um, I mean, there's a very good book uh, on Lemkin by John uh, Cooper, uh, which I didn't have a chance to read before I wrote my own, in which he argues uh, very convincingly, the Great Britain was also opposed to the convention as a whole. Um, but this was the Soviet Union in particular that uh, eliminated social and political groups from the genocide convention. Then, you know, for a long time, uh, the genocide was basically forgotten about in the sense that, you know, uh, although the sufficient number of UN members ratified it, you know, the U.S. hadn't ratified the convention. People didn't pay much attention to it. And it really took, in some ways, the 1990s and the horrible things that happened there in terms of um, the uh, killings uh, in uh, Bosnia, uh, genocide in Rwanda uh, in 1994, uh, that got people thinking again about genocide, about its importance, about its applicability. Uh, and about its relevance to international law and also to the international system uh, as a whole.
So that's, in short, <laughs> um, uh, the history of our use of the term genocide. As you know now, it's a term that's bandied about all the time and that some people misuse and abuse. Everybody wants to be recognized as the victim of genocide. And I think, you know, I think it's important, um, uh, you know, to keep our eyes on the fact that this is the crime of crimes, that it's mass murder, you know, on a terrible scale. Uh, but I also believe um, that Stalin's killing, and also, you know, we should think about the killings in China and Cambodia and other places uh, where governments, political leaders essentially kill off groups of their own population, uh, substantial numbers of their own population, should be considered genocide as well. And that, that's, you know, that's a, that's a, a major part of the argument of the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Um, yeah, that was a very good introduction. Let me ask, before we proceed to talk about uh, Stalin and Stalin's crimes um, in detail, let me ask the following uh, question. There are political scientists, of course, who study these things, and they have uh, what is really a kind of stock term for them. It is not genocide or even mass murder. It's democide. Have you ever heard this term? You have. You mentioned it in the book. Uh, why don't we just call it democide or something similar? Okay, well, my my view of this, you know, a- academics are wonderful at making up terms <laughs> that, uh, that they enjoy uh, using, and you know, um, sort of the idea is, in some senses, to talk to ourselves. There's been democide, there's classicide, I've seen ethnocide. I mean, a lot of people would like to create new sort of classifications for killing that would uh, leave, in other words, the genocide uh, concept intact or not use it at all. In other words, uh, some scholars believe that genocide is so tainted by its judicial meanings, its legal meanings, that historians and social social scientists shouldn't use it at all. I absolutely disagree with that. I mean, my view of this is that, you know, historians, scholars, social scientists need to speak, you know, to a larger world uh, in which, um, you know, terms are used in a particular way that makes sense to people. So, you know, genocide is something we know now. Genocide is something... We deal with it's with the you know the press deals with it, um, uh, um, you know public intellectuals deal with it, uh, Congress deals with it when it tries to uh, pass you know a, a genocide resolution having to do with the Armenian genocide. You start messing around, <laughs> you know, with creating a whole series of new terms. I think you you basically lose the fact that you live in a real world. A real world where somebody like this, uh, you know, president of Sudan, you know, has been indicted for genocide uh, by, you know, the international court. And you understand broadly what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, uh, I, I think that using new terms, you know, may make things more precise in some fashion and, you know, chop the onion up in. Uh, in different pieces, but my basic view is it's the same onion, <laughs> if you will. I don't know if that's a good metaphor or not, but I mean, 
It, uh, but you see what I mean. In other words, I, I think we ought to use the terms that are out there, that are being used by, by people, by pundits, by everyone, uh, as a way to join a larger discussion about the problem of genocide in the modern world. Mm-hmm. So let's actually move on and talk about uh, Stalin himself. Uh, the, the, okay. The, the second chapter of your book, I found it really interesting. One of the things historians really like to do is look back at people's biographies after the fact and find things in them that would suggest that uh, their activities in the future, so to say, are predictable. That is, right. you know, we'll look at Hitler or right. something and say, oh, yes, well, it's predictable. He hated Jews. Or Stalin. Is there anything in Stalin's biography that would tell us that he was going to kill millions of his own, I guess I'd call them subjects? Uh, you know, my own view of this uh, problem is one that is more, um, you know, long durée when it comes to Stalin. In other words, I don't think there are any secrets to Stalin's brutality. I mean, it, it could be, I have to say, it could be, you know, something physiological that we just don't or will never know about, meaning he was missing a part of the brain mm-hmm. where fundamentally people are empathetic with others and care about the suffering and death of others. Because we know from everything we read, uh, we know about him, and we now know a heck of a lot more about him than we knew before 1991. Uh, when the archives were completely closed. Um, I mean, we know he had no empathy whatsoever for the people he destroyed and that he was perfectly happy, uh, perfectly willing uh, to destroy, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people without, you know, blinking an eyelash. So uh, without having any regrets whatsoever. That much we know. So who knows? There could be something physiological that that explains that, you know, barring any, any understanding of that, which we will probably never have. You know, if you go back to his biography, some people have located, you know, his brutality in his very early youth, which is to say his father was a drunk and used to beat him up. Um, But, you know, looking, when I took a look at at this material, and by the way, I, I relied primarily on uh, other people's biographies, and there have been a lot of them, and they've been very good. And then I looked at the best, you know, the best material I could um, uh, on this. You know, I came to the conclusion that there really isn't anything that would, you know, be a key to explaining this man's brutality. Um, And instead, it's cumulative, is what I argue, over time. But there are many things. I mean, he, he did not have a particularly happy youth, although, you know, his mom loved him and, you know, was completely dedicated to him. But, you know, you go to his schooling and you see that the man was a poet and he loved to sing, uh, in addition, you know, to reading radical literature in the seminary, which pretty much everybody did all over the Russian Empire in similar educational situations, especially in the borderlands. And... um you know, uh, he came into the he came into the Bolshevik movement, as you know, uh, which was the most radical, you know, of the underground movements. Uh, he he, he be, you know immediately attached himself to Lenin, who was the most um, uh, you know aggressive and um, authoritarian, you know, of the uh, underground leaders. Uh, 
you know, his role in the revolution was a very um, important one. But I don't think he showed any more proclivity towards violence there than other Bolsheviks who were pretty, who were pretty violent crew. You know, some people have located uh, his violence in the Russian Civil War. And you look at what he did on the, on the Tsaritsyn front, and indeed, you know, there are really examples of some, some fairly cold and cruel activity, but again, nothing out of the ordinary. So, you know, I think what happens is that gradually, you know, this, this willingness to use violence accumulates. And then in the power struggle in the 20s, you know, which is a very, I mean, it's not overtly violent, but it's, it, it has a kind of political violence to it, meaning people aren't killed or hurt in, in the 20s. But there's a very kind of fierce attention on Stalin's part to accumulating power. You know, so the, by the beginning of the 30s, you know, this sort of, this, this fierceness, this focus, you know, and also this, you know, craftiness and in some senses intelligence, you know, um, uh, accumulates to the point where I think he's just ready, you know, ready to use violence. And then decolocization, you know, you see the first sort of real instance of mass violence. You know, not necessarily ordered by him in a particular way that comes later, but but a, but an unleashing of violence uh, where uh, you know he's ready to see others use violence or, or to see violence used to accomplish the aims of collectivization, mm-hmm. and I think it just simply accum- you know accumulates. Mm-hmm. So that that would be my answer that it's cumulative. Uh, and that you can't point to one instance, but that you can point to a number of places along the way where, you know, there's a kind of escalation of the commitment uh, to use to use violence against uh, his own people that, uh, you know, that don't bode well for the future. I mean, you can't predict what's going to happen, right? But, uh, but, but, but that that prepare him as a genocidaire. Mm-hmm. So before we move on to talk about the crimes themselves, l- let me ask you what used to be the big question in Soviet history. I don't know if it is anymore, and that is the question of continuity between Lenin and Stalin. Uh, you oh. remember these debates. It was really quite all the rage. Uh, w- what do you think? Was um, w- Is there something of Stalin's uh, crimes in the Leninist period or in Lenin or – is Stalin a real departure? I, you know, that's a, that's still, I think, an important question, especially when thinking about Stalin and genocide in particular, because I would not put Lenin in the category of a genocidaire. And, 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 and you know, you need to try to uh, distinguish between the two. Um, I mean, Lenin, obviously, was someone who was ready to use violence, who had people killed, who, you know, strung up people, you know, peasants in Tambov just for the purpose of showing the other peasants that they shouldn't rebel as well. Um, so there's nothing, I mean, we're not talking about um, a pacifist by a long shot when we talk about Lenin. Nevertheless, uh, it's my view, and I understand that there are other views of this uh, that, that might be different, and that have a certain point to them, 
it's my view, looking at all this material on Stalin, uh, that once again, there was some relationship between means and ends with uh, Lenin. You know, you want to stop a peasant uprising, you know, you kill peasants and string them up, as I say, on the hillocks in the neighborhood, and the other peasants won't rebel. You know, you you shoot a certain number of socialist revolutionaries, and you let the rest go abroad. Um, you know, they flee for their lives, basically. Uh, so, so what I'm saying about Lenin is that violence had a very particular, in, in my view, again, violence had a had a relationship to the goals uh, uh, which he had in mind. There was a kind of, re, you know, there there was. A, there's a principle in law which I think is called the reasonable man or something like that, you know, where where you talk about somebody shooting an intruder in your house. Well, you know, a reasonable man might well do this in some circumstances. But if he's sitting in the tree on the outside of your house, a reasonable man is not going to shoot him, right? So similarly, you can understand Lenin's violence in the context in which he worked and lived. This is how I would look at it. Mm-hmm. I see. Stalin's violence, it seems to me, was gratuitous, unnecessary, and had no necessary, had no, you know, um, reasonable relationship to the problems he wanted to solve. Mm-hmm. You know, that, in something like collectivization, or something like if there, you know, there was a, a sniff that something was wrong in the army. You know, what he does is kill, as you know. You know, masses of people. Mm-hmm. Without any real relationship to dealing with a problem, mm-hmm. it's my argument as well as you know in the book uh, that that when when historians uh, will sort of point to the coming of the war, you know, as a justification in some ways, as the reasonable relationship between the killing and and um, uh, and what came later, you know, I think there isn't any. I mean, I think basically he didn't prepare the country for war. He made it much, much weaker. Um, and as a result, you know, I don't think, uh, you know, I think that Stalin's killings are very different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Well, let me actually um, concentrate, again, before we move on to the crimes themselves, on, on one other question which uh, is often asked about um, the genesis of Stalinism. There are those, I don't want to personalize it, but there are those who will argue that when you attempt to follow um, Marxism to its logical end, that is, you attempt to build a communist state, this is exactly what you get. That in fact, Stalin was, uh, if not the true follower of Lenin, he was simply following a program that is kind of embedded in um, communist ideology. This is what a communist state does and looks like. Well, you know, I don't necessarily agree with that point of view. Um, uh, I mean, I would not. Uh, I, w- I would not argue, you know, that Marxism was just those wonderful humanistic documents that came out of the 1840s that Marx wrote, you know, which talked about, you know, the flowering of humanity and, you know, the freeing of uh, of men and women from their from their uh, oppression. Uh, you know, Marx was also a revolutionary, and uh, you know, he also had a very hard edge. 
uh, to him when he thought about revolutionary activity. So I don't I don't consider myself, um, you know, a, a Pollyanna about Marxism, but um, I think there are lots of different ways one could have understood the evolution of the Soviet state. Um, you know, after Lenin. I don't believe, for example, that any other or very few of the other potential leaders of that Soviet state, except for Stalin, would have undertaken the kind of mass killing that he undertook. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're talking again about millions of people who were killed. Uh, I, I just don't believe that that was uh, inevitable. I don't think the evidence is there that that was uh, inevitable. You know, once the Bolsheviks had seized power, I think there were a lot. There were potentialities, in other words, within the Soviet state uh, that could have taken it in a different direction. Um, you know, I, 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 again, I, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not someone who believes in, 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 in inevitability in history. I think contingency is very important, and I think that particular contingency, that it was particularly Stalin who came to power, right at the end of the 20s, in this in this struggle for power. It didn't have to be him who came to power. Not only that, you know, who knows? Somebody could have taken a shot at him um, uh, and killed him. That would have been, uh, you know, somebody did it at Kirov. Mm -hmm. uh, we think that was ordered by Stalin, but we're not really sure about that. But the point is, uh, the point is, um, uh, this did not have to happen anymore uh, then the Holocaust had to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone had mercifully taken out Hitler in 1936, you know, there were a lot of anti-Semites uh, in, in charge of, in, in, the, in the Nazi government, to be sure. But I don't think uh, one would have seen the same kind of evolution uh, that happened. So similarly, in the, case of, uh, in the case of Marxism, you know, Marxism has certain you know, hard-edged revolutionary elements to it, which Lenin then took to another power, right, uh, of hard-edged revolutionary elements. Um, but Stalin took it, I think, beyond beyond Marxism, beyond Lenin, into a place uh, where um, a kind of evil uh, was uh, omnipresent. I mean, historians don't like to use the term evil but it doesn't bother me, I have to say. Okay. All right, let's begin to talk about the crimes themselves. What is dekulakization, and um, why should we consider it genocide? Why, why did Stalin embark on this campaign? Okay, I mean, uh, you'll notice in the book that I, I don't sort of label things genocide or not. I tend mm -hmm. to say they're genocidal, or they could be considered genocide, or they could be included in a in a package of what might be considered genocide, I, I try to be careful about being too um, didactic uh, about all of this. But um, as you know, um, again, you're you're knowledgeable in this field, so it's you know I, I feel slightly awkward lecturing to you about this. Oh no but, no, please go ahead. But uh, but um, uh, you know, collectivization uh, was uh, meant you know, to essentially break the back of the independent peasantry in, in Russia, to force peasants to turn over the product of their uh, labors to the state so that the state could 
export uh, grain um, and use that uh, income to invest in industry. I mean, it was part, you know, of an ind industrialization plan and also a plan, uh, as I said, to politically bring the Russian peasantry uh, completely under control. As part of that plan, the idea was, I mean, there was this sort of idea that out there in the countryside, and this, this by the way, was shaped and colored by Marxist and Leninist lenses, that out there in the countryside, there were these rich peasants, uh, the so-called kulaks, uh, you know, because they held uh, gold in their hands, which they had exploited from the, uh, a kulak means fist in Russian, and they was, you know, in these fists were full of, of coins, right? Um, and uh, they had exploited their uh, other peasants, uh, and that a sort of class conflict in the countryside would be roused. Uh, the poor peasants and uh, middle peasants against the so-called rich peasants, um, and uh, that would aid collectivization because the rich peasants, of course, would be opposed to collectivization. You know, what happens in, in fact uh, is that the peasants are attacked as a whole. There's a kind of civil war uh, in the countryside in a series of waves uh, in the early 1930s that see some, let's say, more well-to-do peasants. There are hardly any rich peasants as well as others who simply opposed collectivization were labeled kulaks, as well as whole villages were sometimes labeled kulaks, priests were labeled kulaks. Um, these people were attacked from the outside, I mean, uh, and, you know, by uh, policemen from the city, sometimes by groups of workers who were armed, uh, sometimes by poor peasants, vagrants, drunks, and others. Um, uh, they were attacked. Uh, some were summarily uh, tried by troikas and shot. About 30,000 were shot. Uh, another uh, 2 million or so were exiled. Uh, and many millions of others were just driven from their homes to other parts of the country. Now, uh, in shooting... Uh, okay, so so that's the, you know, that's the rough picture of what happened. Mm -hmm. um, uh, why would one call this genocidal? Well, first of all, what Stalin does and what the leadership does is identify kulaks as a class, even though they're not a class. In other words, they put a, they put a, 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 a kind of a social stereotype on them. They identify them as sort of inferiors, as animals, as, as insects, as as uh, as inferior, you know, half ape kinds of people. Um, they say we're going to wipe out this class. We're going to eliminate this class, much as you would say I'm going to eliminate or kill off a, an ethnic or national group. Uh, and they proceed. To do it, mm -hmm. I mean, they do it in 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 part uh, by execution, in part by sending them, you know, to these awful places 
of exile in the gulag, some of them to special settlements. And these special settlements are basically places where people are meant to die. Uh, They're cut away from society and meant to die. And then later uh, in the decade, I mean, this happens immediately, right? Um, And then later in the decade, uh, there's this famous Order 00447, in which kulaks play a prominent role being identified. Those remaining kulaks are identified you know, by the government as enemies of the people, and many uh, tens of thousands are shot again, and others are exiled. So you have a situation where you know, the kulaks are cut out. They're in some ways created by the Soviet government, as a social group, they're cut out from society as a whole. Uh, even their children are identified as kulaks, you know, parents, wives, cousins. I mean, they're considered a group uh, by uh, the Soviet uh, authorities, led by Stalin, and then eliminated. Uh, so, you know, my view is that's a genocidal action. Uh, you know, something. Uh, where a group is killed, uh, is put into you know situations in which they'll die, you know by the tens, the hundreds of thousands, uh, and they do die, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and therefore uh, I think of that as a as a part of the whole genocidal uh, um, program of Stalin in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Well, let's actually move on to the the second episode of. Um, mass killing that you deal with, and that's the Holodomor, the, um, the um, you call it the uh, Ukrainian killer famine, I think. Is that right? The t- Ukrainian what? You call it the re- Ukrainian killer famine, is that right? Yes. 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 Uh, wh- why um, the interjection of the word killer? Why not just the Ukrainian famine? Okay. Um, well, again, there's, uh, you know, there's some controversy about whether the Ukrainian famine should be considered genocide. Um uh, Ukrainians, many Ukrainians uh, believe that it, it was genocide. Others do as well. Um, and the real question here is there was, a, in part, as a result of collectivization and dekulakization, there was a terrible famine, right, uh, uh, all over the Soviet Union uh, in this period. Some areas were hit worse than others. And Kazakhstan was hit very badly uh, by a denomadization campaign. Uh, sedentarianization, sedentarianism, <laughs> but uh, uh, never mind. But they're making the nomad populaza- population sedentary. And in and Ukraine and, um, um, and Kuban, which is heavily uh, inhabited by Ukrainians, was also hit extremely hard. So the question is, then, why do you consider this as you say, uh, genocidal or a killer famine versus the famine in the rest of the country. And there are several reasons for this. First of all, um, from all the evidence we have, it looks like Stalin purposefully uh, allowed Ukrainian peasants to die. Uh, the reason you can say this is because some peasants, I mean, the cities in Ukraine were not doing well either. Uh, you know, Kharkiv, Kiev, and others. But there was enough food 
in those cities to keep people alive. The countryside there wasn't, and they wouldn't let people go from the countryside to the cities. That's first of all. Second of all, uh, they couldn't leave Ukraine to seek relief in other parts of the city, other parts of the country. I mean, when Ukrainian peasants tried to get on a train or tried to just leave, march out of the country, out of the uh, out of the uh, Ukrainian uh, Republic, uh, they were stopped and returned uh, to their home villages, which was basically a death sentence. A requisitioning of grain uh, was increased during the course of the famine rather than decreased. In other words, in Ukraine, in particular, Stalin looked at the peasants uh, as resisting collectivization. It was their own fault, he said, that they starved. And therefore, they should just die. I mean, that was basically his point of view. Um, and rather than accept any responsibility himself, or the government accept any responsibility themselves, uh, you know, folks like Kaganovich uh, and Molotov, Stalin's deputies, you know, put increasing pressure on Ukrainian uh, uh, peasants. There was a grain reserve in the Soviet Union that could have been used, you know, to relieve the suffering. And again, you know, death by hunger and death by starvation, and, and, and there was, by the way, widespread cannibalism, widespread cannibalism that everybody knew about. I mean, this was not a secret. Uh, they were shooting people for cannibalism, but they couldn't stop it. Um, there was even, some people think, a, a market, you know, in, in human uh, flesh. All of these things, you know, could have been relieved by the Soviet government if they had used their grain reserve and not insisted on the requisitions and not insisted on exports. We don't see this same kind of sort of brutal indifference uh, to the suffering of the Russian peasants uh, that we see in the case of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. You know, there was offers of help from outside routinely turned down by Stalin. So the situation in Ukraine was much, much worse, first of all. Um, and uh, second of all, uh, uh, Stalin and the Soviet leadership made absolutely no efforts uh, to relieve uh, the death and, and hunger uh, that was besetting uh, mostly Ukrainians, by the way, not all Ukrainians in Ukraine. I mean, meaning there were some Germans and Jews and Russians and others who suffered in Ukraine. But it was primarily an effort, you know, to get the Ukrainian peasants. And in that sense, I think the Ukrainians are right to call it genocide. And we know in the end, I mean, again, estimates vary, but most reasonable scholars will say that three to five million people died. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, in horrible circumstances. Again, it's not great to be shot, right? I mean, that's not a nice way of dying either. But to die of hunger and starvation, you know, these villages simply expiring 
you know, with no way out, uh, is uh, is a horrible human tragedy of enormous proportions, uh, which I believe that Stalin uh, and think that Stalin and the Soviet government was responsible for. So let's uh, move on to the the third, very quickly, the third um, set of events that you deal with under the rubric of genocide, and that is one that I think that many people don't know about, and that is the removal of nations, this um, these campaigns for ethnic cleansing and um, resettlement that went on in the late 30s and through the 40s. And here we're talking about the ethnic Germans and the Poles, uh, the Chechens, the Crimean Tartars, and, and so on and so forth. Could you talk a little bit about that? Okay. Uh, there were a series of episodes uh, in the 1930s that saw, um, you know, the attack on nations in, uh, in the Soviet Union and Stalin's attack on nations. Once again, um, I would suggest that these attacks were, you know, completely unjustified by the threats that were claimed in all of these cases. You know, the, the Poles uh, were, and Germans were um, singled out uh, in 1934 already uh, as uh, potential enemies. Uh, the Poles in particular were seen by Stalin, you know, as conspiring against the Soviet Union. I mean, he continually claimed, as did people in his government, that the that the Pilsudski government uh, in Poland, you know, was was trying to undermine the Soviet Union and was, you know, there were all these plots and agents and things like that. And while there were some of these things, on the whole, this was wildly exaggerated, way out of proportion to what uh, actually happened. So Poles then, and there was a considerable number, hundreds of thousands of Soviet Poles uh, and Germans, uh, uh, were singled out, you know, tried, in some cases shot, and deported. There were a series of these actions uh, that continued throughout the 30s. Again, they began in 34. They continued during the Great Purges themselves in 37 and 38, when once again uh, Poles were uh, isolated, Germans were isolated, as enemies uh, of the Soviet government, Poles were removed uh, from many of their positions in the government. I mean, there were many Soviet Poles in the NKVD, for example, in the uh, police. They, too, uh, were taken out of their positions, tried and shot or exiled as, um, as uh, enemies of the people uh, and as, um, you know, people who were uh, trying to overthrow uh, the Soviet government and as agents of Poland and Japan. I mean, for a variety of reasons, Japan was dragged into this as well. Then there were the Koreans uh, who lived in the Far East. And Stalin did have some worries about the Japanese. I wouldn't say he didn't have any worries about the Japanese. But again, these worries were exaggerated way beyond belief, way beyond any real threat. I mean, the whole, during the Great Purges, the whole railway administration was purged uh, because a few Japanese had been involved in trying to modernize uh, Soviet railways in the early 30s. Uh, in any case, um, 
uh, the Koreans uh, were deported en masse from their homes uh, in um, eastern Siberia uh, to Kazakhstan. Uh, many died. Uh, many suffered when they arrived in place where there was no housing for them and no, no food for them, no jobs for them. Um, this was uh, took place in 1937. It was the first major deportation of a whole nation en masse. Um, in the, during the war itself, in Stalin, in some ways, finished the job or with the Poles in in the famous, uh, you know, what we call the Katyn Forest Massacre, which was much bigger than Katyn himself, where 22,000 Polish officers uh, who came under Soviet uh, control uh, during the Soviet takeover of their part of, you know, uh, Western Ukraine, Western Belarusia, Eastern Poland, uh, as a result of the Nazi-Soviet pact, these 22,000 Polish officers uh, were taken out and shot, you know, as a, as a, I mean, one could call it a, a, a genocidal murder because the idea was to decapitate the Polish nation and make them incapable of, uh, you know, of leading uh, and, and reconstituting uh, their own country. This was, a, you know, very similar to what Hitler did in the part of Poland that he took over in an operation, you know, where some 60,000 uh, Poles were taken out right away. Leaders, you know, officers, administrators, teachers, priests, and others were taken out and killed. So you have both the Soviet government and the German government you know, engaging in genocidal actions against uh, uh, the Poles. Uh, Poles were also deported, by the way, en masse uh, from Western Belarusia and Western Ukraine. You know, estimates range 200,000, 300,000 or more uh, deported uh, to the Gulag, where many, many uh, died there. So the campaigns against the Poles, in other words, were ongoing and I think should be considered as genocidal uh, campaigns. The idea was to just get rid of Poland and Poles uh, uh, as best you could. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this, of then, all the cases... Then, pardon me? I was going to say, of all the cases, this one seems definitely the most clear-cut under the old definition. Right, right, yeah. right. And then in, uh, in 1944, uh, the peoples of the Northern Caucasus uh, were uh, deported en masse. And when I say en masse, I mean whole nations. I mean all of them, right? I mean, when you talk about the Chechens, English, you know, we're talking about nearly half a million people picked up out of their homelands, accused of alleged um, uh, collaboration uh, with the Nazis. Same thing with Crimean Tatars. Uh, we're talking about fewer people in that case, but all of the Crimean Tatars, some 190,000 altogether, picked up and then deported, you know, to Central Asia. And once again, it's a very interesting and sad story where the idea is, and we know this from the documents, they're supposed to have shelter and work and, um, and clothing and other things waiting for them. And when they get to where they're going, there's nothing. And, uh, you know, they die, uh, you know, by the tens of thousands. Um, and the question, of course, is, uh, is this genocide? And 
no, Chechen historians and, and Tatar historians say yes, because substantial portions of their nations, um, you know, are, are killed off by these deportations, either by the transport itself, which is horrible uh, in the conditions, or when they get there, there's nothing there. Um, you know, there's not a lot of documentation which shows that Stalin or Beria or the Soviet leadership intended them to die. But when they get there, you know, there's nothing available for them to live on. So, you know, there's a real question in my mind, and I bring it up in the book, about whether this could also be considered genocide. Well, let's um, go on and talk about the fourth episode very quickly, and that is the one that I think is the best known of uh, all of these horrific acts, and that is uh, the, what is called the Great Terror. Could you talk just a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, here you have, uh, again, sort of like the decolocization action, you know, the Soviet government actually creating alleged political groups, right? Uh, and these political groups, in theory, in the elaborate plots, you know, are are described, uh, whereby the the leaders of both great leaders of Bolshevism, those who are still alive, you know, Bukharin, um, Zinoviev, Kamenev, Radek, whole whole groups of these people, these famous Bolsheviks, uh, are involved in elaborate plots, usually with outside support. Trotsky, Trotsky's mentioned in every plot. <laughs> Uh, as well as the Japanese and the Poles and the Germans, uh, are involved in these elaborate plots to overthrow the Soviet government, to kill Stalin, to take over the country. Uh, the Great Purges, you know, spread. Uh, I mean, these these three major groups were tried in show trials, and, you know, people from all over the world came. Uh, some... People actually believe that these were genuine conspiracies, genuine political groups out to, to eliminate Stalin. Um, and as we know, the, the number of accused spread and proliferate, um, you know, these people's friends, their relatives, their associates at work, and their friends and relatives and associates to, you know, get swept up in this vortex of killing, accusations, denunciations, torture, um, um, and exile. Uh, you know, in the end, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people who, who then are swept up in these, um, in these purges, the so-called Great Purges. Uh, associated then with that is the is the you know mass killing of army officers uh, of the leaders of the Soviet army of the leaders of the of the railway administration you know down to the engineers um, you know whole bureaucracies uh, are wiped out the nomenclatura you know the the, the party leadership uh, is destroyed. Uh, along with their friends, their families, their associates, uh, in these, in this, again, you know, tornado of mass killing. Now, uh, the question of genocide, I think, is a much harder one here, uh, because we don't really, in the, you know, in the case of the Kulaks, 
in some senses, a group did emerge, a social group did emerge out of this. In the case of uh, in the case of these killings, even though they're focused on alleged political groups, there's really no commonality between these people whatsoever. I mean, the Great Purges were one of the most. I mean, if you can say it, one of the the most lunatic, um, uh, you know, parts of Stalin's mass killings. At the same time, again, I make the argument, and I and I think it's right that there is a genocidal aspect to this, that killing off your own people, you know, killing off alleged political groups of your own people, you know, and their families and their associates and their and their friends, you know, has a real genocidal aspect to it. So I include this, you know, in this whole, uh, in, in this, um, as it were, you know, gr- group of um, genocidal actions because I think it, it has certain characteristics of genocide even if it were very hard, given its completely lunatic aspect, you know, to pin, uh, to pin a kind of, um, uh, um, you know, to make a, a genocidal plot out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you conclude the book by talking about uh, the comparison of uh, Stalin and Hitler. Uh, how do you compare them? Are they comparable? How should we judge their... Um, Activities relative to one another. Okay, I mean it's a it's a good question. It's one historians are increasingly grappling with. I'm happy to say. I mean, there was a while when um, the the subject was sort of untouchable, uh, and now it's not untouchable anymore. There are a number of good studies. There are a number of very intelligent comparisons that talk about both the similarities and differences between Hitler uh, and Stalin. You know, my view is um, that the uh, that uh, the, the similarities, especially the kind of structural similarities, the structural slash historical similarities, are are too strong to ignore, and one has to really take those into account. And that is the fact that in the 1930s and 40s, there are these two enormously powerful dictators you know, who caused the mass killing and the mass death uh, of um, huge numbers of people, um, uh, both within their own societies and outside their own societies. Now, clearly, Hitler does most of his killing outside of German society, uh, and Stalin does most of his killing within Soviet society. So that's, you know, that makes for important and significant differences. But they're both killers. They both control mechanisms, um, you know, institutional uh, mechanisms that are able to carry out their will. I mean, you know, uh, uh, Lenny Reifenstahl called it triumph of the will in Hitler's case. And in some cases, in some senses, you could call this the triumph of of, of Stalin's will. Um, you know, they both were able, you know, to control these um, these states and to build them in such a way that they responded to their needs and to their wishes mm-hmm. and to their wills, uh, and they did. 
uh, I mean, the other, um, you know, area of comparison, of course, has to do with their ability um, also to lead people. I mean, uh, you know, Hitler was obviously a charismatic leader of one sort, you know, someone who could move the German people and could convince them that his visions should be theirs. Um, Stalin was a different kind of leader, but he had his own charisma. I mean, he had, as you know, his own cult. Uh, he had a way of convincing people that what he was doing was right and was in their, their own interests. So even in a situation in the 1930s, you know, where your own relatives are being taken away, you know, to the gulag or being shot, sometimes you actually believe that they're guilty. Um, so both of their abilities as leaders, um, you know, I would, you know, I think the totalitarian school in Hannah Arendt had a lot to say about mm -hmm. this. Um, you know, again, I realized that they were different kinds of societies, uh, with different kinds of, um, of control mechanisms, uh, you know, that Hitler, you know, co-opted important, powerful forces within German society, whether it was the army or industry uh, or other, or the church, whereas Stalin essentially was dealing with a destroyed society and rebuilt it on, in, in, the, in a kind of Bolshevik image, in his own view of a Bolshevik image. You know, this makes for important differences, but the similarities are, are really, really powerful to me. And they are, you know, they, they destroy their own countries. They make mincemeat, you know, out of the lands in between, mm -hmm. you know, out of Poland and Ukraine and, and Eastern Europe. And they do this in some ways uh, together and separately. Yeah, it's a, it's a sad tale. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, Norman, thanks very much for being on the show today. We really appreciate it. We are um, about to run out of time here. Uh, before we close, uh, I wanted to ask you to answer our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what are you working on now? Okay. I mean, I haven't left Stalin, I think, is the right answer. So what I'm doing is a project that's been in the works for a while, really on Stalin and Europe. And this has to this is a different angle on Stalin. And Stalin's an endlessly, you know, interesting and scary person, but but he's also very interesting in terms of foreign policy. So I'm working on immediate post war Europe, trying to understand uh, how Soviet policies uh, were received uh, in Europe, uh, how Europeans reacted to these policies, uh, how they themselves opposed them or didn't. And in doing this, I'm trying to break down the barriers between Eastern and Western Europe and look at Europe as a whole. I'm doing some uh, case studies from all over Europe. So trying to understand, you know, how it is uh, you know, what Soviet policy was after, what Stalin was after, how he operated, how he dealt with Europe uh, after the war. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this is a piece of Cold War history. It's a piece of European history. Uh, and it's a piece of Soviet history. 
Well, it sounds like a great project, and I hope that when you're done with it, you'll uh, come on the show and talk to us about it. Okay. All right. Well, we've been talking to Norman Neymark about his book, uh, Stalin's Genocide. Norman, thank you very much for being on the show. It was a pleasure. It was uh, nice to talk to you, Marshall. All right. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Norman Neymark about his book, Stalin's Genocides. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. <laughs>